0: Thanks for the song, because there's a word I want to pick up that you uh, used in that song. It's called friend. And somebody walking that way, there are two of them, weren't there not? Yeah, come walk with me, friend. What does Jesus call us? Friend. Friend. Anyway, the title of my sermon is Let's Start Over, Motive and Manifestation. I want to back up in time... And, and look at some things. But first of all, I want to set a, a stage. And this has to do with history. And history intrigues me because we can learn so much from what has happened in the past and how it relates to right now and then the future. And the thing that interests me about this particular topic is... When it comes to motive and manifestation, let's go to the legal system of the United States. Not too long after the French Revolution, the founding fathers of our country got together. And they wanted to create a new type of country with a government that was going to be fair for everybody. They saw the mistakes of the French Revolution... And they did not want to repeat those mistakes. So we see in the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, both those documents respecting human rights. And we have the, uh, the Bill of Rights. All men are created equal. as a preamble. And then we have all those amendments in those Bill of Rights. And one of them has to do with crime in our judicial system. So let's take a look at it for a moment. I use the word motive in manifestation, and let's, let's put it within the crime of murder. I've committed a murder. I've been arrested. I've been uh, bound over to the court. Here's the question. Am I judged on motive, or am I judged on the manifestation? How many would say motive? How many would say manifestation? Okay, let's take a look at it for a minute. Okay, now this is the bad side of something. All right, we're going to take and we're going to take it from the bad side and put it to the good here in a minute. All right, so uh, I committed a crime of murder. If I'm arrested and bound over to the court. And tried on manifestation, there's only one possibility of judgment. And as guilty as charged. Now, it can be go either way. But when the police investigate and they have arrested me, the investigation continues on into motive. Because we have... Within the realm of murder, the crime of murder, we have negligent homicide. We have vehicular homicide. We have premeditated homicide. We have first degree homicide. We have second degree homicide. And when the police take and they put their file together and then the uh, defense attorney and the prosecuting attorney take and they read the reports, they concentrate not on the act or the manifestation, they concentrate on the motive behind somebody's demise and my part in it. So do you get it where we are judged and we are tried on motive and not manifestation? Does it make sense? And a lot of those crimes, in fact, in, 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 uh, in, even in the crime of murder, uh, there was a cop friend of mine was talking with me. And I asked him one time, I said, you know, there's, a, there's just a few things that when you go out to a scene and you immediately arrest, you take that individual to jail. And he goes, yeah, there's four. No questions asked. We take the individual, we take him directly to jail. There's no investigation. There's no nothing. One is domestic abuse. And that is when we come into a situation when one spouse is beat up on another spouse or children are involved. If we were to let the perpetrator go, once we exit, the anger takes over and they come back and finish the act. But he says when it comes to murder, usually their conscience usually bugs them enough, unless they're psychotic, that they'll flee. They want to get out. So he says, you know, for murder, we don't always take people right directly to jail. We let us, we go through the process of investigating motive. And then they're either exonerated as just somebody, a circumstantial evidence. Or... Negligent, premeditated, and there's one other one, psychotic, just for the pleasure of killing somebody. So there is that investigation going on. Ellen White says, our judicial system was based upon the principles of heaven. That's a pretty profound and deep subject, isn't it? Statement? My goodness. Now let's take a look again if I were arrested for murder. Let's go to the trial. What is my best defense? Character witness. Because if I get up there on the stand as my own defense, I can lie. Can I not? I can lie. Not tell the truth. But if there's somebody that comes up and says, I want to take and testify on this behalf, and they compile those lawyers, take and they compile that list, and they say, okay, well, we, let's, let's just, okay, let's back up and set the stage a little bit better. Let's say it's circumstantial evidence. I've been arrested. And everything points that I'm guilty. My best defense is somebody else's testimony in my behalf. Who is the best witness for me? Okay, let's, let's, let's keep it within this realm of secular. Jesus is going to be our best defense, absolutely, in the courts of heaven. When this trial is going on in the universe. But who is the best defense on my behalf? Somebody who knows me. Okay. I'm going to look at my wife. Debbie and I don't have a lot of years together, but I think we're starting to really know each other. Coming up on four? Yeah some of you've been married a lot longer okay would it would it be would it be a spouse be a good character witness yes and no is the answer yes and no because you can still take and based upon one person it's too personal Who is my best defense? A third party. But as I begin to compile the list, and I have my wife, I have my kids, I have my co-workers, I have my boss... I have the people I go camping with. I have the people that I go to church with all testify in my behalf. No, we've known Ron Snow for this many years, and we know because of his character. We know because of his character. It's an impossibility he would not do this crime. And how powerful is a character witness in a court of law? It's very, very, very powerful. And the more you can have, the better off. Are you beginning to see the implications of God on trial? What does he need? He needs witnesses. And in Revelation, are we not told here are those that have the witness of Jesus? the testimony of jesus and where do we give testimony but not in a if if it's not in a court of law we are there standing there now let's go back because there's a connection now let's start transcending over into the great controversy who's on trial in this great controversy god is We need to understand that point, that God is the one that has been arrested. He's the one that's been bound over. And there is an accuser out there that is telling a lot of lies. You and I know that, don't we? How can we testify for Jesus? That's the next question. Well, I want to go back a little bit further because now I, we've kind of set the this, this stage. And because there is a relationship between a character witness and an accused, and it's very personal, and the word I know that individual, when I start looking within my scripture, I look at the word know, it means an intimate connection, be it husband and wife, Eros, between parents and children, familia, between God and us, agape. We need to be able to take and separate those things in there. All of them are aspects of love, but we need to start looking. If it's between God and I, then it's agape. And if I look at the position that I have, you know, I've shared with you the definition of grace. Do you remember what it is? The stock answer is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. But to paint a picture and actually see it and imagine it in our mind, it's a relationship between somebody that's superior and inferior. And the superior takes without reason, reaches down and bends over, and he gets down on his knees, and he offers his hand out to the inferior and grasps them by the hand and helps them stand up. What would you call that? If you give me one word, what motivates a superior to do that for an inferior? What would you come up with? Pardon? Agape. As we understand it, love. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13 uses the word charity It's agape. It's a relationship between God and his created being. When did God's love start? It's a trick question. It always has been. It always has been. Is there not scripture that says God is love? All right, And let's go through, you know, I, I took and I looked up the word love in my, in my Bible. It occurs, I think, 330, 303 or 330 times. Just love, small uh, l and not plural or ed or whatever. Just the word love. And originating from God to man, it happens about 12 times, 10, 12 times in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament... It's about 50 times. And we start seeing this thing of grace coming into play. And we have to go back and we have to start over. What was the motive of God to reach to us? And the only answer we can come up with is because he loved us first. And is that not scripture? He loved us first. He loved Adam and Eve first before they ever sinned. He loved Adam and Eve first after they sinned. He even loved Cain and Abel. Seth. And we have all this history right here that goes down through... The beginning of time, clear to the end of time. and shows that God loves all. Even in the history of Israel, how many times did they apostasize and slip away? And every time they came back, and just like the preamble to the Ten Commandments, it says, "I am the Lord thy God, who has delivered thee out of the house of bondage. I've delivered you out of Egypt." You were a prisoner there, and I came and I took you out. What motivates God to do that? Love. He loved them. And he knew that they were in a wretched condition. He knew he could see it. Look at it. Slaves. They work from dawn to dusk, contributing to the the economy of Egypt. Was their prejudice alive and well? And where were they on that pecking order of ethnic superiority? they were at the bottom. Racism—anything new? Always has existed. It existed with Adam or uh, with Cain and Abel, did it not? Bullying. But God's there and he says, okay, I see the potential because why? Because we were created with love in our hearts. How many have ever heard of Arlene Taylor? She's a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Are you shaking your head? Yes? Yeah. She, she's a, uh, a brain activity researcher who travels all over the world and gives lectures. And where I came from in California, in Galt, uh, she, she had personal friends there. And the first Sabbath of January, she always came to Galt and she would lecture. And there was continuing education available for any medical uh, individual. But she had one very, very special presentation about uh, a protein that we have within our brain our heart and our guts. And it is a protein that stores memory. And she used an illustration of, a, of an individual who uh, had something to do and he was replicating an ancestor and his actions and the way he spoke and everything else. And they researched it and they found out, you know what, within this DNA... And that's where this protein's contained. There is a memory, and I got it for for the better part of it, to understand it, it's just a little chip. It's still there. Bobby McFerrin. I had watched him. He interests me. He's He's a musician who can take and he improvises. He's also a professor of music. And he travels again all over the world teaching people how to improvise with their music. And he was having a concert in Berlin, Germany, and he was just improvising away. And, and uh, he's, his ancestry is coming from the continent of Africa. And there was a lady in the audience who was taking and working on her Ph.D. in dead languages from Africa. And Bobby McFerrin, while he was improvising, was making these sounds, just improvising, spontaneous. And after the concert, this lady came up to to, uh, Bobby and she says, Where did you learn this language that you spoke when you were improvising up on the stage? And he goes, What language? So she started taking and repeating little phrases, little sounds that came out of his mouth. And she says, this is from a tribe that is dying out in Africa. And you spoke vocabulary from their language. It shocked him. So you know what he did? He went back and he went to 23andMe or Ancestry.com Gave his, gave his uh, specimen, and they traced it back. And you know what tribe he's from in Africa? The tribe and the noises that were coming out of his mouth was vocabulary from his ancestry, probably about five to six generations back. We all respond to love. Why? Because that's the way we were created. And in our minds, we have a protein within the DNA double helix that responds to and is capable of giving love. In our hearts, we have a protein within the DNA helix that can respond to and give love. And we have a protein in the double helix, DNA helix in our gut that can give love and receive it. Where did it come from? We were created that way. And why is God still still on our side? Because he loves us. And when he exposes his love for us, our memory chips in our minds, in our hearts, in our guts respond to him and that connection is restored. Fantastic, isn't it? Amen. Okay, but we have to witness. And is that not another word within the judicial system, a witness? And what is it that we witness that speaks of God's love? It's me. I need a personal experience with God's love. Ellen White talks about we would all do us good if we were to spend an hour a day looking at the last hours of Jesus' life. Why did he die? For God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you ever taken time to investigate those last hours of Jesus? Let's take for a few moments and go through the crucifixion. When was Jesus arrested? Thursday. Probably Thursday night. Some say Wednesday night. Thursday night is the most evidence is most accepted. Taken to several different courts, one of them he is beat. Roughly handled. It's interesting when you look at the medals that represent the image, Nebuchadnezzar's image, and how the medals respond to how they respected individual rights. The correlation between gold and how Nebuchadnezzar respected Israel's rights. Do you know that they were awarded full citizenship? They could own land, They could be educated. They could own a business. They were citizens of Babylon. And we begin to see those individual rights slowly erode away till we come to Rome where the individual did not have a single right. Back to Jesus, arrested. He's beat. Can you imagine a big whip with pieces of metal pieces of bone pieces of glass now these Roman soldiers were known for their brutality ripped his clothes off of his back and beat him why and why did he submit to it By his stripes we are healed. What was Jesus's motive for not saying anything? It was his love for me? His love for me. A crown of thorns pushed on his head. Have you? Have, you, have anybody ever taken and, and got a sliver in their head, or, or you know, just hit something sharp where it cut? Oh, I see some smiles and some laughs. Yeah, okay. Now imagine. Uh, Uh, When I was in Africa, acacia, and everything has thorns on it there. My goodness. Some of them are real short. Some of them are really long. And they are sharp. You think they just slowly put this crown on his head? Easily, just gently placed it on his head? No, they slammed it into place. And I'm sure with some kind of a protection, they made sure it was securely penetrated into the skin. And those rivulets of blood came down. How come he kept quiet? Taken. Finally, go crucify him. And they lay that cross upon his shoulders. Now remember, he's been beat. Thursday night, this is Friday, probably about 24 hours getting close to it not a drink of water no food physically exhausted mentally tired and what kind of hope did he have only the promise of his father of I will resurrect you again only the promise he was having a tough time seeing beyond, and we need to understand that. He was having a tough time seeing beyond the grave, but he was willing, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed, to go, Oh, King, let it be known that we serve a God that's much bigger than you, and he is able to save us from the fiery furnace, but let it be known that if he doesn't, we'll still serve him. That was Jesus saying, I'm willing to give up my life. And even if my father chooses not to resurrect me, I'm going to die for human beings on the planet Earth, of which I am the chief of sinners. 2,000 years later, here's the death of Christ. Here I am today. He died for me before I ever existed. Is that love? Is that love? Peter's denied him three times. And yet he can't stay away because he does have that connection with Jesus. And if you look at when Peter and, and Jesus get to let, get, get together after the resurrection, when Jesus asks Peter, "Do you love me?" He uses the word "Do you familia?" Love me, and Peter says, "Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Feed my sheep." And then Jesus asks him again, "Do you familia love me?" And Peter answers, "Yes, I do." Is he telling the truth? Yes. And then Jesus asks him the third time, "Do you agape me?" And Peter, understanding, says yes. And what is agape love can be summed up? John talks about it. If you wanted to go to the two books in the Bible that talk more about love than anything else, it's the Gospel of John and First John and the New Testament. What book do you think talks most about love in the Old Testament besides Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon? I just took the three biggest ones out. Deuteronomy. Has more to say about love. I think Psalms is like 33 times. Deuteronomy is, I think, 15. 15 or 17 times talks about love. But yet, do we not look at the Old Testament as law? And when we really understand what law means, it means reviewing back about the love of God and how He has taken care of us all down through the ages. Not only did He rescue the Israelites out of Egypt, but He rescued us out of sin. A much grander, a much bigger stage. In Matthew, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us about judgment. It's a legal term, isn't it? What was Jesus' answer? Told him a story. Sheep and the goats. If I was hungry and you fed me, I was sick and you visited me. If I didn't have very many clothes and you gave me some. If I was in prison, you came and visited me. And if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Come inherit the kingdom I've prepared for you. Then he tells the others. You didn't do it? Sorry. Sorry. Is it judgment or a consequence? They made some choices, did they not? And That's the thing about love that we have to come back. It respects choice, and that's a very important word. We can respond. We can choose to respond. And when we respond, there's things we begin to see. When I realized when Jesus died for me on a cross, and by the way, he wasn't driven through the hand right here. He was driven right through here. Because the, the Romans in their, in their uh, um, sophistication of torture knew that a body weight that was just hanging on the bones of your hand and the bones of the arch of your foot, your just body weight eventually going to fall off the cross. But there's two places in the body that have tremendous tendons. These tendons right here, there's just, you can feel them. You can just, it's just strands and strands and strands of tendons. And they're very, very tough, very, very strong. And the strongest tendon in your body is your Achilles. So what they did, nailed him here, nailed him here on this wrist and if you look at the word hand in the old uh, Hebrew in Chaldee, it means everything from the wrist. It's the fingers. But then they turned the feet sideways, and they nailed through the Achilles. Go home and just try to stand there for a while. A little slanted block. Through archaeology, they've identified what crosses look like. And they have taken and they have found skeletons of people who were crucified. Do you know there's one other spike that's not mentioned? Mentioned out of respect because they were crucified naked. And to help hold them on the cross, they drove nails through the pelvis. Not all, some of them were tied. Could it be possible that Jesus endured that fifth or that fourth spike? Why did he do it? What motivated him? Love for me and for you. And as we respond, just like Peter, when Jesus turned and looked at him... After that rooster had crowed three times, there was that look, that meeting of the eyes. And Peter remembered how he said, I will never, ever deny you in the concept of familia and not agape. Now, I'm reaching a conclusion there because love, when it comes to agape, is the most powerful force known to the universe greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his brother what's the motivating factor in my life god's love for me let's go to 1st corinthians 13 I like to look at 1 Corinthians 13 as a warning. But within it, there's some positive. 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not agape... I am become as a sounding brass or a, twink, a tinkling cymbal. If I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, is that manifestation? I can have manifestation, but I don't, if I don't have love, what's it, what's it worth? Nothing. Nothing. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains and have not agape, I am nothing. Is not the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith manifestation and love is motive. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not agape, it isn't worth anything. Manifestation and motive. If I'm judged, what are they going to judge me on? Motive. When Ellen White says the judicial system of the United States is based upon the principles of heaven, is they look at motive. What drives a person to do what he does? And rather, than, and rather than looking at it in the criminal aspect, let's look at it in the positive aspect of God's and what he wants to do for us. And look what happens. Am I concerned about my neighbor? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What was his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second's like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. How many commandments are there? Two. Two. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes it down to one. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. On this hang all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments was nothing more than a stepping stone for the Israelites who came out of slavery. No educational system; they needed to be taught as kindergartners, cradle rolls, and that's why it says there's only one God in that first commandment. It's, a set, it's the reason there's only it, uh, Don't make any graven images because He's alive and He's desirous of a relationship with you. If you're going to be called a Christian and a follower of Christ, then do it. But those first three have no any indication of who God is. And what makes the fourth commandment so special is identify who that one God is who created us. And he created and he still has a memory chip in our brain, in our heart in our gut that can respond to his call of love. And that was planned long before the world ever came into existence. And for me, it came into reality at the cross 2,000 years before I existed. That's love. The next six commandments is what love does. And again, that second commandment when he was talking to the lawyer. And also contained within the concept of Sermon on the Mount. Love your neighbor as yourself. People, I truly believe, were only asked two questions in judgment. Just like Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. What's the evidence that we've taken care of God's other creations? The manifestation of the motive of God's love is a love for our neighbor. Two questions. Do you love me? And does your life witness in your behalf? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much that we worship a creator who has instilled within us still a memory of the Garden of Eden. And that's the concept of love. Implant it, help it grow bigger and bigger in our brain. Help us to take it within our heart to where we just want to hold on to it with our strength. We'll never let it go. And that intestinal fortitude that just gives us that strength to say nothing like in Romans 8. Nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.